Well, welcome back. Week of this week in government enforcement. I'm Jerome Thomas, joined by my co-host Tom Firestone. We've got a couple of cool things to talk about uh, today. Um, Tom's going to start us out by talking about um, new fare charges in the one MDB case, uh, as well as possible new Russia sanctions. I'm then going to wrap up the episode by um, talking about last week's SEC enforcement case involving, uh, it's a latest enforcement case really involving um, a failure of a public company to maintain adequate disclosure controls and procedures related to um, cyber incidents and data breaches. And of course, this discussion comes on the heels of last week's um, sweep um, uh, announced by the SEC, or not really announced, but by the sort of a, it, it's well publicized that the SEC sent um, requests for voluntary information to a number of public companies and other institutions um, who may have been impacted by the solar winds compromise back in late 2020, asking for information relating to the incident and disclosures around the incident. So again, um, really interesting stuff going on. Tom, I'm going to hand the ball off to you. Why don't you take up the middle and then I'll uh, run us in the end zone at the end, okay? I'm mixing sports. I'm sorry. So <laughs> Go, go. It works. The analogies work anyway. Thanks, Jerome. Yep. Um, so there are two matters that I wanted to discuss today, as Jerome said. The first is last week, the Department of Justice returned a superseding indictment in the 1MDB case. This uh, superseding indictment um, once again charges two of the main alleged perpetrators, Joe Lowe and the um, music star, Pras Michelle, um, in a superseding indictment with orchestrating a um, unregistered back channel campaign to influence the Trump administration and DOJ to drop the investigation of Mr. Lowe and others um, in connection with the 1MDB case, and also to send an opponent of the Chinese government, an opposition figure, back to China. We've discussed this case previously. These two were previously charged with um, campaign finance contributions in connection with the same campaign. Now DOJ has added Farah charges against them for trying to influence the government. But what's really interesting about this is that they've combined the Farah charges with money laundering charges. And this, I think, represents, this was done in the Manafort case um, as well. Now we're seeing it again. I think this represents a new, much more aggressive approach to bringing Farah charges, combining them with money laundering charges. Now, how can they do this? Well, Farah, you've got, let's say you've got a foreign government sending money into the United States to um, uh, orchestrate, to finance an illegal lobbying campaign. What you've got there is promotion money laundering, transfer of money out from outside the United States into the United States for the purposes of carrying out, promoting a specified unlawful activity. Farah was added to the list of money laundering predicates by the Patriot Act way back in 2001, so that's how you get that. And there's a provision in the money laundering um, statute, 18 U.S.C. 1956, that does not require that the money spent actually be criminal proceeds. It says that, again, if you send money, funds from a place outside the United States into the United States to promote um, specified unlawful activity, in this case Farah, you can be charged with money laundering. That's essentially what they did here, a conspiracy to violate Farah and money laundering 1956 at the same time. Now you see what this does. This essentially extends Farah to the foreign funder by roping them in under money laundering. And it turns a Farah charge, which carries a relatively limited penalty, 
into a money laundering charge, which carries a very substantial penalty. So this, as I say, is a very aggressive approach to FARA. I think it's one that we're going to see more of, and it is consistent with the Biden administration's national security policy, which looks to use anti-corruption laws in order to protect national security, including protect keeping dirty money out of US politics. So an interesting development, this was litigated, as I say, they used a similar theory in the Manafort case. It was limited, but it was litigated before the district court in the Manafort case. Manafort's lawyers tried to dismiss the charge on the grounds that, you know, Farad just didn't apply in this way. The court rejected that. So there's precedent authorizing this kind of twinning of money laundering and Farad charges. And I think we are going to see more of it. Um, it sort of brings to the fore the broader question of Farah and where is it going? We have seen a tremendous, tremendous uptick in enforcement over the last several years, um, partly because of a 2017 OIG report criticizing DOJ for not being aggressive enough, partly, of course, because of the Manafort and Flynn cases as well. And so we're seeing a lot of discussion around revisions, potential revisions to the Farah statute. There are a number of bills pending in Congress right now that would um, revise FARA. Some of the proposals are to remove the um, exemption that allows um, lobbyists for non-government foreign principles to register under the Lobbying Disclosure Act rather than FARA. Um, another proposal would create a dedicated unit within DOJ to enforce FARA, which I think is not really necessary given that they already have it. Another proposal would give the Department of Justice civil investigative demand authority to collect documents in a fair investigation. Again, not really sure how much they need that given that they've already got subpoena power. Um, I think what if they're going to do something with Farah, what would really be helpful is if the DOJ came out with comprehensive guidance on how Farah applies, similar to what DOJ and the SEC have done in the FCPA area. There we have a very thorough document called a resource guide, which examines a number of situations, explains how the statute should be interpreted. Something like this would be enormously helpful with FARA because it's so vague, we have so little uh, precedent on it. And while DOJ does publish advisory opinions that are issued under FARA, they tend to be very thin on the facts. It's hard to know how they would apply um, to anything beyond that particular situation. The beauty of something like the resource guide is that they take a lot of hypothetical situations they lay out the facts in great detail, and then you know how the statute will apply in that situation, even if it has not been the subject of a litigated case or a previous advisory opinion. Something like this would be enormously helpful with FARA. The in lack of clarity around certain key provisions in FARA is stunning. The legal exemption, it applies to direct representation in court it, um, and proceedings on the record. Not clear what that means not clear how far it extends. There are statements by DOJ that a lawyer making statements about a case ancillary to a, an exempted representation is not required to register. How far that goes, we don't know. The commercial exemption, bona fide commercial purposes of the foreign principle, how does that apply? There are a million gray area situations. But I think the biggest issue that is um, need of clarity under FARA is this whole question of does it apply to activities outside the United States directed to a US audience. Now the statute by its terms only applies to activities within the United States. On the other hand, the statute was written in 1938 and our understanding of within the United States has changed substantially over the last 80 years with technological developments. 
And sure enough, a few months ago, a DOJ official in common and speaking at a FARA conference said, even those without a physical presence here are capable of acting, quote, within the United States by virtue of the internet and mail. And that was with direct res respect to FARA. So think of what an enormous expansion of FARA this would be if the government starts taking the position that conferences, policy statements, policy um, events, which take place outside the United States, but broadcast into the United States by television, Zoom, what have you, can be covered by FARA. That will change the scope of FARA um, dramatically, to say the least. It would be useful to have clear-cut guidance on all of this. So hopefully we will get something like that from DOJ as enforcement ramps up. The second subject that I wanted to talk about today, as Jerome indicated, is the possibility of new Russia sanctions. This past Sunday, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, appearing on the various Sunday morning talk shows, said on one of them, uh, when asked about the uh, results of the Biden-Putin summit, he said, we rallied European allies in a joint effort to impose costs on Russia for the use of a chemical agent against one of their citizens on Russian soil, speaking about Mr. Alexei Navalny. He then said, and we are preparing another package of sanctions to apply in this case as well. And he also talked about the possibility, he also talked about the administration's commitment to maintain sanctions against Russian entities involved in the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Now, I think his statement caused a lot of um, anxiety because we just had the Biden-Putin summit, which in some ways got things back on track with Russia, some very limited ways got things back on track with Russia, including returning both countries' ambassadors to Moscow and Washington. Both had been out of the countries for a long time because of the nature of the state of diplomatic relationship. Um, and I think some people saw this as an attempt by the Biden administration to backtrack on improving Russia's relations with Russia, undermining what it had done. I think that the explanation for this is actually much more prosaic. Um, Senator Risch and Representative McCall sent a letter to the administration last week citing the U.S. Chemical and Biological Weapons Control and Warfare Elimination Act of 1991, which requires the administration to issue a second set of sanctions arising out of the poisoning of Alexei Navalny. They had previously imposed sanctions in March arising out of that, but the statute actually requires them um, to impose a second set of uh, sanctions. And that's what they wrote to the administration saying, you're required to do this. It's June 2nd, three months have passed since the um, initial sanctions. You missed the deadline. When are we going to see these new sanctions? Um, so I think that we are going to see something. Sullivan was very careful in what he said on the talk shows, though. He said, well, we'll impose the sanctions as soon as we've identified the appropriate targets of the sanctions, which could be a long time. So bottom line is I think that we are going to see new sanctions because it's required and we have some Republicans in Congress raising this issue, but I think they're going to be um, very specific, specific targeted on certain individuals. And I think the Biden administration is going to try to craft them carefully so as not to throw the relationship, not to aggravate the relationship any more than it is. They've been very clear that they want to establish guardrails in the relationship, keep it under control, cooperate where we can, manage the crises where we can. And I think that the Sullivan statement is consistent with that rather than inconsistent with it, as some have suggested. So with that, back to you, Jerome. Thanks, Tom. You know, but go back to your fair point real quick. You know, obviously, I don't, fair is not my specialty, but um, 
you know, curiosity drove me to poke through the, the, the government's fair website a couple months ago. And uh, I, I was shocked about how similar it appeared to the old, old DOJ FCPA website when I was still an associate at Baker McKenzie, right? Um, you had a bunch of the uh, FCPA opinion procedure releases, which you, which were based on facts in that particular case, oftentimes thin and negotiated, right? So you weren't sure what was really driving a lot of these issues in these opinion procedure releases. And then you had a four or five page document, the layperson's guide to the FCPA. And they said, here you go. Here's a statute that, that's no more than a couple thousand words, but basically is at the heart of corruption um, around the world. And what all this means, oh, and by the way, most of this is gonna be discerned from speeches, um, you know, that you go to the various conferences and have to kind of pull tea leaves from those and you can get the transcripts of the speeches and you can glean things off of that. Um, I was surprised how similar the, the DOJ's website on FARA looked uh, to the DOJ's FCPA website. When I first started doing FCPA stuff at Baker around like 2006, 2007. Uh, so your, your suggestion about the, the guidance is a really good one. Well, I think the analogy is an excellent one because back then when you were, um, when you were starting out as an associate, the FCPA had, we still didn't have that many cases. 2006, it was still before Siemens and the real explosion in FCPA yep. cases. The FARA, and similar to the FCPA, it's a statute that's been on the books for a long time, but only now really being aggressively enforced, vaguely written, and it can apply to a lot of benign conduct. It's not like um, drug trafficking laws or something like that, where you're likely to have a lot of legitimate businesses caught up in it. So I think we do need this kind of guidance. I think it's even worse than where the FCPA website was in 2006, because at least then you had that old thin layperson's guide. Layperson's guide yeah. so it was about six pages. Now what we've got is about a hundred pages. We don't even have that with Farah. And I think we need it in the worst way possible. And I hope that, um, I hope that DOJ will do it. And I think before we start talking about changing the statute and tinkering with it, it would be useful just to have a common understanding of how the statute applies and how all of these ambiguous terms in the statute are interpreted. Then we can talk about uh, reforming the statute, revising it, but I think we need the guidance first. Absolutely, great point, Tom. <clears throat> so last week, the SEC announced a settlement with First American Financial Corp, alleging violations of Exchange Act Rule 13A-15A, which in English, plain English, is the disclosure controls and procedures provision that requires every issuer of a security registered under Section 12 of the Exchange Act to maintain disclosure controls and procedures designed to ensure that information required to be disclosed by that issuer um, is in fact recorded, processed, summarized, and reported to the investing public. Um, we've seen the SEC using disclosure controls and procedures more and more in the data breach and the data compromise context. Um, in connection with this, uh, this settlement, the SEC obtained a cease and desist order, um, as well as a $487,000 approximately civil penalty. So what's this case about? So real quickly, First American had a title insurance and services segment, uh, which included issuing title insurance policies on residential and commercial property and providing closing and escrow services. Obviously to render these services, First American was in possession of a significant amount of data. Part of this data as alleged by the SEC uh, involved data regarding purchasers and sellers, non-public personal information, such as social security numbers and other financial information. From a significant standpoint, 
in 2019, First American derived roughly 91 to 92% of its revenues from this segment. So it was a huge part of, of the company's business. So what First American did is it facilitated the mortgage services by using a proprietary service called Eagle Pro, Eagle Pro application, which was used to transmit documents, you know, the images of you know, you're taking out a mortgage of title and escrow related documents to First American customers. These documents were sent to and from customers and stored on a repository that contained about 800 million document images, including both public and non-public information. Um, Eagle Pro would use a URL link to allow its customers to access the information that they were submitting, um, which would connect, contain obviously a link to the mortgage-related documents. Um, and these documents were both, you know, the publicly available information as well as the non-public personal information um, relevant um, to getting the mortgage. Um, and so what happened? Well, Eagle Pro allegedly contained a defect. It was embedded in the application that allowed a user to take the URL, um, which in many cases contained the non-public personal information, and change the digits in the URL that would allow that person to view other document Im images other than the ones that the person had access to. So basically a simple manipulation of a web address essentially would give you access to someone else's um, mortgage documents. In addition, certain of the, the documents um, that were supposed to be transmitted through um, Eagle Pro um, were uh, um, cached and stored on publicly available search engines. Um, uh, the, the, the banks or the, the company's InfoSec, Info, Information Security Team, identified initially a vulnerability relating to a lot of these issues, but did not remediate these issues in January of 2019. So kind of the facts are, January 2019, the information security function allegedly of First American uh, identifies um, these vulnerabilities. Um, under, the, uh, under First American policies, um, uh, where you were unable to remediate an issue, the SEC alleged it had to be escalated up to um, management all the way to the, the CISO, the Chief Information Security Officer. So then fast forward four or five months, May 24th, 2019, um, a cybersecurity uh, journalist, unidentified cybersecurity uh, journalist, um, emailed um, the company's investor relations department and said, oh, by the way, there's a web application that's leaking roughly 800 million documents from real estate transactions going all the way to 2003. Um, and the information on this, uh, on this, on these websites or on these, this publicly available repository evidently included bank account numbers, mortgage and tax records, social security numbers, wire transaction receipts, driver's license images, sort of, you know, the core um, personal information. Um, that next trading day, so on May 28, 2019, on the morning um, following that May 24th article, um, the company filed an 8K and attached a press release. And the press release said that, quote, there's no preliminary indication of large scale unauthorized access to, to customer information. The press release also said that First American, according to the SEC, First American Financial Corporation advises that it shut down external access to a production environment with the reported design defect that created the potential for unauthorized access to customer data. So that's kind of the background here. What does the SEC say the disclosure controls issue is? 
Well, according to the SEC, on the morning of May 24th, 2019, so the day that this journalist identified for the Investor Relations Department this issue, um, First American CISA learned um, about the January 2019 vulnerability um, uh, and that that vulnerability had not been remediated. Uh, a day later, uh, the company's, according to the SEC chief information officer, learned about that same vulnerability and lack of remediation. Um, the SEC said between the times that these officers learned about this information and between when uh, the company made its 8K disclosure on the 28th of May, there were multiple <laughs> meetings um, between the CISO and the chief information officer and the company's CEO and CFO um, that, you know, sort of reading between the lines, presumably would have been an opportunity leading up to the filing of the 8K for these, these officers, the, the CISO and the chief of the CIO to provide the CEO and the CFO with this information, of course, which was all publicly available or information on this attack or on this vulnerability, which had, all, which had already been publicly available based on the uh, May 24th. 2019 report. Um, according to the SEC, this didn't happen. Um, and um, subsequent to the filing of the, the 2000 uh, or the, the May 28th, 8K, uh, InfoSec personnel determined that the vulnerability had in fact existed all the way going back to 2014. Um, the SEC says, look, as a result of basically these functions not talking to the CEO and the CFO, the senior executives lacked certain have um, enabled them to fully evaluate the company's cybersecurity responsiveness and the magnitude of the, of the risk from the Eagle Pro vulnerability at, at the time they approved the uh, company's disclosures. And here we go, and then there's the punchline, which is the final substantive allegation in the order is, and I can read it, quote, as discussed above, the company's business includes providing services involving data related to real estate transactions. Nevertheless, as of May 24, 2019, First American did not have any disclosure controls and procedures related to cybersecurity, including incidents involving potential breaches of that data. So what the SEC is saying here, and it's something we've talked about before, it's, um, look, especially in the cyber and the data world, your your infosec groups, your CISO and your chief information officer have to be locked in with your CEO, with your CFO, frankly, um, also from other cases that we've known about, frankly, from our experience with your legal department, with your securities disclosure council, with your disclosure committee, whether it's a, a management committee or whether it's a board committee, because oftentimes it's these, these infosec departments, the, the, the essentially tech departments that get access to information about cyber breaches, and they need to be hooked in with the players who are responsible for making disclosure decisions so that disclosure decisions can be made based on the, the fullest and most extensive body of information related to the item that is being disclosed here. It would be related to this vulnerability identified in the May 24th, 2019 um, newsletter. And what, what the SEC has said in the past is, if you don't have this, if you don't have a good process for flow of information between your tech group and your disclosure and management group, we are going to look hard at whether you had effective disclosure controls and procedures. 
Um, and that alone is a standalone violation of the federal securities laws, as we saw. That was the, the only allegation in this case was a violation of the disclosure controls and procedures. There was no there was no allegation of a misstatement. There was no books and records violation. There was no reporting. There simply was because you didn't have anything in place at the time to ensure that management was learning about information they needed to ensure that the disclosures were correct. We're going to bring that as a substantive case. And I think I think the fact that there's no um, reporting violation or no um, non-scienter-based misstatement violation, Tom, it speaks volumes to what the SEC is looking at here. They're saying, hey, look, even if you, you don't make a misstatement, inadvertently or inadvertently in your public statements, we're going to come after you if you don't have something in place to ensure that your management knows about what's going on with the cyber incidents. Um, and so, again, we've talked about this before, but it's a really helpful reminder. I think it's probably the starkest reminder to date because it's the it's the it, disclosure controls and procedures violation in isolation. It is a one-off charge, and they're not relying on fraudulent statements or arguably false and misleading statements. This is just a case that you didn't have anything in place. They're sending a message here. Um, and I think the message stands in further con or uh, is more stark in light of what we uh, we saw break late last week and over the weekend, which is the SEC has been sending requests for voluntary information to a number of companies, mostly public companies, but also um, banks and other financial institutions, asking them for information about um, uh, whether um, they, they were involved in what is now known as the SolarWinds compromise back in late 2020. Um, and asking for information about that. They're asking for information about what, what, uh, uh, what was the relationship between the, the company and uh, SolarWinds? Um, was there any review or assessment done of whether there was a compromise and what kind of remediation was done? But in addition to the SolarWinds incident, um, they're also asking, do, are you aware of any other compromise? Don't define other compromise other than saying any other unauthorized access to information. Are you aware of any other compromise? If so, tell us about it. And what they're saying is if you give us answers to all these questions um, and you didn't know about the SolarWinds compromise before September 1st, 2020, we'll give you a pass. We will give you a declination relating to SolarWinds um, disclosures in your, in, in your filings, as well as internal controls, internal accounting controls related charges relating to SolarWinds. Um, they've specifically exempted other things such as insider trading and Reg FD, as you might expect. But what they've also done, Tom, is they haven't given the similar assurances of declination for the other compromises, right? And so, um, you know, you, you're in a position here where you're making disclosures to the government um, in order to get a potential pass on any SolarWinds-related um, disclosure or internal accounting controls-related issue that, that you might face as a result of being presumably subject to the, to, to the incident, um, but you, you're also being asked to disclose everything else and you don't necessarily get the same level of assurances. And so um, again, this, is, this has all been, been written up and it's, it's, it's out in the, in, in the media, but we wanted to kind of tie these two things together. The SEC is clearly looking at cybersecurity related procedures at public companies. Um, they think this is one of the most critical aspects of a public company's um, protecting and safeguarding of investor and shareholder assets is you got to make sure your assets are actually secured from hackers. That they, they can't steal your your Coke recipe, if you will, as I call it. You, you can't steal, you know, MNPI. You can't steal 
um, uh, uh, personally identifiable information or any other business secret that will put the company and therefore the, uh, the shareholders at both a, a financial and an operational disadvantage. So again, um, they've been saying this for close to a decade based on meetings and conferences I've been going to, but it's really coming to a point over the last year. And so I, I thought kind of tying these two things together would be helpful. So uh, uh, with that, I think I'm done with my part. And I think, Jerome, I just want to add to what you say. I started off by talking about the Russia sanctions. There's a fascinating tie-in between yes. what you were talking about and the Russia sanctions, because a lot of what is requiring the Biden administration to put sanctions on Russia are these cyber attacks. At the summit last week, he, of course, raised this with Putin and basically threatened retaliatory offensive action by the U.S. government against uh, Russian assets. He said uh, at one point, something like, it'd be a shame if something happened. Imagine what would happen if something happened to one of your oil pipelines because of a cyber attack. So the Biden administration clearly wants to get the Russia relationship under control. They don't want it to be a problem. They want to focus on China. That's a problem for them because of the Russia cyber attacks. So what they're doing is the SEC is basically leaning on private businesses, get your cyber security in order. That will make their job of dealing with the Russians much easier if there is appropriate defense in place. So I think we're seeing, you know, all of these issues fitting together in a coordinated strategy by the administration, which I think is um, is obviously the right way to approach. Whether or not that'll work is a different is a different story. But it seems to me an appropriate thing for them to be doing right now because cybersecurity, it's not just the security of the of the companies anymore. This is a national security issue. Yeah. And the government needs the private sector to help them fight this battle. Yeah, absolutely. Tom, look, I, I, as much as this is a legal play, an investor protection play, this is more so a foreign policy play. I, I, I absolutely it's a foreign policy play. We'd be foolish to not think it is. Um, and going back to what you said last week, um, when you said, look, to be good lawyers, you got to know foreign policy. You got to know what's going on in the foreign policy arena. Absolutely, right? There, there are a couple things going on here. It's not one, but I think the foreign policy considerations are driving what's going on here, what I just talked about for the last 15 minutes. In fact, our entire episode by two white-collar lawyers is largely a foreign policy-related discussion, which punctuates your point you made last week to me. In the, in the current world, there, there are two things. The, Government enforcement and foreign policy are intertwined now in a way they have never been before. Yes. Yeah, fascinating stuff. All right, Tom, it's great to be back on the horse with you, man. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll do this next week again. Um, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll talk to you guys later. Keep the emails coming. Keep the, keep the comments coming. Keep watching. Take care, guys. Thanks.